This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. It's more from the heist issue, where we look at some of the biggest thefts and scams around the world. This week, Britain's great model train robbery remains an unsolved crime. Maybe you can solve it. (laughs) Plus, a fraudster loses to the SEC, but beats the clock on penalties. We also take a break from heists and hear from the CEO of Crunch Fitness. First up, though, we spoke with Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, about how the heist issue came together. Joel, remind us about this issue, cover to cover heist. Yeah, we set out to steal your summer with a bunch of stories about heists, and everyone loves heist stories. You can't stop reading them. You want to know how it ends. And ultimately, because we're Business Week, all of these stories are business stories. They really do. There's one story, and you described it as being very cinematic, and I think that's so true. But it's really about addiction on several different levels. Yeah, that's right. So the story is about a guy in Seattle who went on an unbelievable bank bank robbery spree. Over the course of a year, he hit 30 banks. And the bigger story here is that it was about his drug addiction. He went from Oxycontin to heroin, and to, ro- to fuel that addiction, he turned to robbing banks. Right, and he did it so scientifically and methodically. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that comes through in the story so powerfully is his own self-analysis and his self-awareness, ultimately, at what went wrong. Yeah, and that's why he was so good at it and why when he talks to us, you, he becomes this really sympathetic character. So he's a very persistent bank robber. He was very good at it, and it was the perfect addition and, and real cornerstone of the heist issue. So we go down the coast a little <laughs> bit into the forest. Yes. For the next story, I can't steal a redwood, but... You can steal a burl, right. right? And that's what Sarah McBride talks about here. The story of a heist is really both a story of the, the mice who try and get away with it and the cats who are looking for them. This story is really about the cats, the law enforcement in the, the national parks who are trying to actually confront this problem of people coming into parks and actually walking out with burls from redwoods or a cacti. And they're turning to technology to help enforce that so that maybe you get away with it, but they'll find you. And that's Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Very proud of this issue. So multifaceted. He really got into it. Right. And it's like perfect for reading by the lake, at the beach. A lot of great stories. So we turn now to the number one restaurant in the world. Food editor Kate Crater is here with the details. So first of all, it's a survey, right? Well, yes, the number one restaurant in the world is like the Oscars, the announcement of it, the excitement leading up to it in our restaurant world. This is like the big day. And so they announced the number one restaurant in the world, and it was a surprise. It's never happened before. It's a place called Mirazor in Provence. How could that not be? I know. Well, how could France? So this is the first time France has won the top spot in the 18 years that the world's 50 best has been announcing these awards, which... It's kind of crazy, right? Because France is supposed to be one of the great food countries of this world. So they changed the rules a little bit this year, and that led to a little bit of disruption, shall we say? Exactly. Disruption is exactly the right word. Um, Because this is the survey that put that restaurant Noma in Copenhagen on the map. Like that, a couple of years ago, maybe like eight years ago, they announced that as the number one restaurant, and that changed everything. That's when Scandinavian food became cool. That's when foraging, you first started to hear about foraging. And so now sort of what's old is new again, and they've picked this glorious, gorgeous, restaurant in Provence is the number one place because the other places that had kept winning years and years couldn't but, win anymore. Right, because they changed the rules so that if you won, you're now sort of relegated, as it were, right. to this best of the best Best list. of the best, so exactly. The, the main list It's anymore. like the old timers well list. Well done, almost. right? Really smart move. Well, you know what? It's very smart on a lot of levels. It's smart for them because they get to mix it up and they get to now address diversity more because it really, ha- I mean, it still is like a white guy winning, but it has been the same cast of characters. But the other thing is the chefs like it because if they're number one and their restaurant starts slipping down the list, then that's embarrassing for them and they think people aren't going to go anymore. So if they get to be in the Hall of Fame, best of the best, that's good. We can't go through all the names on the list, but just tell us a little bit more about the winner. Um, The winner is a place called Mirazor. It's in Provence. This guy is Argentinian-born. The chef, his name is Mauro Colomeco, and he has been doing, he's adopted local ingredients. And then the best restaurant in America, if you want to know, is number 23. It's here in New York. It's called Cosme. It's a Mexican, like a fancy Mexican restaurant, and it's great. 
And its chef won some accolades of her own, right? Exactly. Daniela Soto Inez, Daniela Soto Inez um, won Best Female Chef of the world. So there's a lot of reasons to go to Cosme. Well, and we have to mention Noma because it did work its way onto the list because it's got a location and it was number two. If you want some scandal on this list, you could talk (laughs) about Noma, which should, some people would say it should be on the best of the best list because it's won a number of times. But they have a new location. They have a sort of new menu format. And so all of a sudden, it's number two. Like, out of nowhere, it went up 99 places to number two. So all right. that's something to talk about. A couple of restaurants now on my list. Kate Crater, thank you as always. Yeah. And now from the heist issue, we've got a Bloomberg Businessweek investigation into the great model train robbery. I've got to say, <laughs> when I think about the heist issue, this is exactly the sort of story I'm looking for because there's a very human element yep. to it. There's a little bit of absurdity. I'm not going to lie. And it's personal. And it's personal for Austin Carr. He wrote the story. And take us to Kent. Mm -hmm. Is that right? In England. Um, But also, before you do that, Tell us a little bit about your own history with trains. Sure, yeah. I mean, the reason I got interested in this story is uh, because my father, uh, who's sort of a, a wily rabble-rouser in the town that I was born and raised, uh, has long loved Lionel trains. And is, in fact, uh, I, as we note in the story, is wasting or, you know, perhaps investing my inheritance uh, <laughs> uh, into model trains. And so when you when I go home now and, and, and any thieves out there, please don't ransack or, or case our home like Ocean's Eleven. But they are just sitting on my childhood bed. That's the security apparatus for these model trains, which are incredibly expensive at auction or on eBay. And 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 so I grew up seeing my father love these types of trains and, and sort of just collecting them. We weren't allowed to use them as ch- children. That was the irony. Right. Um, but yeah, to this day, uh, you know, as I was fact-checking the story and finding out how much he was spending, my, my mother was getting increasingly alarmed at uh, where our money was going. So uh, that, that, that's <laughs> how it actually... Of the, <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm curious, did your dad bring the story to your attention or how did it come to the story? It, it sort particular? of was serendipitous, but I, I did had some interest in, in writing something about the model train market and and it snowballed from there. As I was getting deeper into this, as I was searching about it, I realized there was just this weird trend of just a, an incredible number of, of uh, heists and vandalism and, and smashing grabs of model train exhibits and stores and clubs like the one that we talk about in our story. Um, and, and that's all over. But we found a ton in, in the U.S., but particularly in the U.K., there was there was a, a, a string of them even in the last couple of years. And that's what led us to Gravesend, which is in Kent in England. Well, tell us about this club in Gravesend. Yeah, I mean, it is just the cute. Uh, place filled with the loveliest people. I mean, when I, I was sort of delighted to go there, I had no idea what to expect. And these folks, it, it's a model uh, train club, but it, it's really an engineering society. These are folks who've been thinking about, uh, a lot of them are engineers. They, they they grew up that way. They grew up building these things with their hands or went to college for it or win the military for it. And so this is really a club about building these locomotives, uh, which are live steam engines. But the whole idea is to educate the kids and, and sort of get them in or interested in this idea rather than you know, just about the model trains themselves. And so there was a robbery. That's why it's mm-hmm. in the heist issue. And you describe in great detail how they think it was pulled off pretty brazen. It, it, I mean, incredibly brazen, but also professional. Yeah. I mean, uh, as we describe, and I don't want to give any spoilers away, so we won't talk too much about the ending, but, you know, in, in uh, the midnight witching hour of uh, Valentine's Day, you had uh, a van pull up to this small roundabout outside of a farm that used to be a, uh, it was a retired Royal Air Force uh, airfield in World War II. It was actually used in the Battle of the Britain. Uh, and uh, it's now the home of this train club. The thieves snuck through a farm in the Back, clip through multiple fences, uh, use angle grinders to get in these high security containers, uh, clipped into padlock cupboards to find these lo- locomotives, which weigh about, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 pounds. And then they had to find a wheelbarrow and wheel them back over the fence, use a hoist to get them back over another fence into the van. And they did this three or four or five or six times. And so to be clear, when we talk about model trains, we're not talking about like the little right. ones. Yeah. that Not the you, one around our Christmas tree. Right. Everyone, you're probably, you, you guys <laughs> might be used to Lionel trains yeah. or in England, uh, horn B trains are popular, or maybe Lego trains or Thomas the Tank uh, for younger kids. Th- these are larger. They're called locos, uh, which I, I, the terminology is also another thing that I came to love about this. Uh, there's a different gauge, which refers to the track that they can run on. But these things are pretty big. I mean, People kids, actually, kids can ride on them. Right. Yeah. Adults can ride on them. Uh, they're, 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 they're pretty large. I mean, they're about one twelfth the size of a, an Amtrak train, Got it. let's say. It's big. All right. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing. I mean, tell us about, so the folks that 
you know, oversee this place, this club. I mean, tell us they what? They wake up the next morning? Yeah. So uh, it, it begins like an Agatha Christie novel. Uh, one of the members, there's a leisure center. Uh, we would call it a leisure center or uh, a YMCA, maybe. Um, potato, potato, <laughs> leisure, leisure. Um, and, uh, you know, he was just near that club with his wife and their Cocker Spaniel. Um, and we're walking along near uh, this you know, gated, fenced off train club in the grass. There's like a pathway. And in the distance, he saw a few of the doors were just off their hinges. Wow. And he thought initially maybe another member of the club was just doing some maintenance work. But as he got closer, clearly something was awry. His wife immediately called the cops. And then uh, uh, he knew to call the one person who was sort of the protagonist in the story, um, Trisha Filey. And uh, she immediately zooms over with her husband. And, and that's when they begin their their personal investigation. Uh, and they really did become, when I say Agatha Christie, they 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 they, they really, went all in. They well, were Miss Marple. Speaking you know? of personal investigation, you became an investigator of sorts. Well, I felt I, like there's a little masterpiece theater going on here. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I uh, do masquerade as an investigative journalist, but uh, they, I, I would say when I had arrived, I'd gone into this thinking, you know, what I'm going to be the one that is going to have to do this all on my own. They might have not done this. It's a very condescending notion. A, a lot of presumptions because they're older people. And it turns out the, the woman, Trisha, had done an exceptional job. She had done my homework. She, yeah. she should be the journalist. Um, I, I mean, just the amount of paperwork that she had, photographs, evidence, everything was meticulously documented. So just providing that with me gave me a huge head start. And it was all about retracing her steps. But yes, I, I contacted a private detective. I went house to house. I went to local bars. I talked to councilmen. I, I mean, I really... Uh, I, I, there was a, a big lead, which we can talk about maybe in a second, uh, that almost broke the case open. Uh, again, I don't want to get into spoilers, but, uh, you know, maybe the thieves out there, uh, we're on the, we're, we're on to them, I should yeah, say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so what drove you through this? I mean, obviously there's a personal element, you know, yeah. and, and I'm guessing it was kind of cool for you to talk to your dad about this and sort yeah. of understand a little father son bonding moment. But what, what was underneath it all? Because this ultimately is a personal story for you. Also a very personal story for this woman. Absolutely. And I think that's what was really endearing and um, enlightening to me. I had gone into this, uh, yes, wanting to tell a serious story, but also recognizing that this might fit into our heist issue. And that has a theme that might work mm -hmm. for this type of story. Right. And it would be a good yarn, as magazine journalists like to say. Uh, but uh, but ultimately, when I met these folks, I, I was just sort of, uh, you know, I, I, Trish likes to use the word gobsmacked, but that's how I, I felt gobsmacked by just their dedication to this work. They're out there. They, this is just for the love. They do it for free. It's basically a nonprofit. They, they're out there doing intense maintenance on these trains and the, the, the big track that they have on their, their sprawling lawn uh, in England uh, where they run these trains. And then every Sunday they have kids over and and it's just really for the love of this hobby. And that's what drove me. I realized, wait a minute, the, the, the cops aren't doing enough to help these folks because right. they're not taking it seriously. So so what can we do to help here? And that's when it, it became less of a, uh, a storytelling endeavor and more of an actual investigation that I, I really believed and wanted well, to solve. I am curious. What did the cops say? Right. Like, were they like, come on, they're all the trains, you know, they can just go out and replace them. And obviously they can't. Right. Yeah. Because these the, are rare. Yeah. They take uh, decades to build one of the trains that was stolen by one of the owners took 25 plus years. Yeah. And uh, he was was just devastated and, and indeed wanted it had planned to give it to his young grandson who's into model trains and, and that won't happen and it's irreplaceable priceless um you know i contacted the police and uh, i'm just gonna say this dispassionately as i can but they repeatedly denied our request for interviews um in one instance they said okay finally after i sent about a dozen emails they said we'll get you on the phone with a cop who was involved uh but can you uh reserve a three-hour time window uh, is sort of like Comcast. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I um, I agreed to that, and then just no call was received. Uh, so then I followed up and kept following up. And finally, they put me into an, uh, in touch with the supervising sergeant uh, who did not, unfortunately, uh, have many answers to he, – he kept saying, oh, we canvas house to house. And I would say, well, the – you know, I canvas house to house too. And they said they never – you never – none of the neighbors had talked to you. Yeah. And he just said, well, we canvas mm. house to house. So it right. was sort of opaque. Uh, and it's unfortunate. Uh, but he did stress that they do take this crime seriously for whatever that's worth. All right. Well, we're not going to spoil yeah. the end of it because as you say – this could lead to something, uh, some sort of conclusion, uh, and it's a must-read and, and really uh, appreciate yeah. you bringing it to us. Awesome. Thank you for having me. So, Carol, one of my favorite stories, it's a graphical look at how to fix a soccer match. It's part of the heist issue. <laughs> and as always, we should caveat, don't actually yeah, fix some fun a here, soccer folks. match. But Ira Boudway has your guide if you were so inclined. He joins us in New York. So – 
How did you even go about putting this together? I guess a lot of people actually do this. Right, yeah. And this actually turned out to be something where I had all this reporting sitting around. A lot of it I couldn't use because it was stuff people didn't want to talk about on the record um, or just books I'd read by match fixers once they're in jail will write a memoir. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it was hard to, this format really helped do it because I could just kind of turn the stuff that people had told me into jokes and also just collect all the insane past instances of, of match fixing and make a kind of guide through that world that's a little tongue-in-cheek and and what is it about soccer or football mm-hmm. as the rest of the world right. calls it that makes it so fixable i think part of it is just inventory and interest so there's like seventy-five thousand. i called up sport radar which is one of these companies that does data for for sports books but also does monitoring for the leagues to see if fixing's going on and they said there are about seventy-five thousand matches booked you know, they think this year where, where there's something bettable in that match, which 75,000 yeah. and that each one of those is an opportunity to fix something. And is it just because there's so many one. matches that it just, why yeah. not? It's part, like I think that's a big part, part of, of the it. sport. Kind yeah. Of? And I think there's also, you know, it's not the greatest betting sport. Like baseball is actually a great betting sport because every pitch is a new opportunity, discrete opportunity for yeah. betting so much flow in soccer, but still there's a lot of ways to tilt a match. You can bet on the who's going to get the first corner kick. You can bet on, obviously, the wins, the over you know, the total score, all that stuff. Uh, and there's a lot of ways to influence it that are not 100% obvious right away. Um, and that's a big key when you're trying to manipulate a match. All right, so how do you start to do this? <laughs> Here's the playbook, everybody. Carol's Take like, notes. okay, I but Take now notes. I need some actual right. instruction. Right. So what? Are, so you decide you want to fix a match. Right. So what do you do? I mean, the the one of the ways I tried to split this up was between sort of, the, there's basically the, the sort of old-fashioned thing you do is you groom a player. And that's a really long-term project. That's why this is frequently organized crime that does this because mm. you've got to get to know them where they are And uh, that same company, Sport Radar, they do these classes in the Italian leagues where they will talk to young players and players all through the organizations about how this will happen. And one of the things they tell them is you won't know when you're being approached by a match fixer the first time because they'll just be a guy at the club who wants to pay for your bottle service, maybe arrange a prostitute, maybe take care of a paparazzo, whatever. They'll start doing you favors, paying your debts. And then at some point, they'll start asking you for things. And then they'll maybe ask for a little bit more. And then there will come a point where you've given them enough that if you say no, they'll say, well, we'll just tell the world what you did. And then they oh own you. <laughs> and then when you're it's done, terrible. they say, go get me another guy. So people wonder how these guys who are really well paid can wind up being manipulated. And, and it's because it started maybe when they were 17, you know, when they were in an academy or something. Are the big name players yeah. part of this? I mean, nobody knows for certain the extent of it. I think you can usually rely on the really, really elite talents to not be part of it, again, because they have really little incentive. Yeah, they, yeah. they can lose they it all, right? right and then right. they've probably been identified since a very young age. But and they have again, legit like, folks coming yeah, in saying, yeah. oh, you know, we want you to endorse, you know, right, you know, endorse exactly. our products. Right. And it's, it's, it's more likely to be like game. a defender at the second uh, yeah. tier yeah. of some European league. This is the more likely mark. And it's not just the players. The refs are also presumably a, a mark here, right? Right. And so that's the other thing that I try to get at is you, there's a lot of ways to go about this. Like players is the one, but referees are great because they earn less money. Frequently, it's it's matches in parts of the world where these federations are not super well supported. Uh, they don't have a lot of money and there's not a lot of regulation around who gets to referee. And so bribes can get you on the pitch even if you're not good or have been proven to be a little bit corrupt and right. get you out there. Uh, so referees are a great window. People have used security guards to like shut off the lights halfway through a match and cause a disruption that will affect the markets. Right. Um, people have gotten to teams to just fake the report of a match. Uh, there was a, a case uh, in Belarus where two teams reported that they'd played and one team won two to one. It never happened. Right. But the betting market saw that and did it. So there's where, a, there's a lot are, of ways in. <laughs> where are the officials in all of this? Are they also part of this? I mean, that's the problem is there's so many, it's a patchwork of regulation. So you yeah. just have to find the weak spots, yeah. right? Like if the Portuguese leagues are not vetting their new ownership, you can buy a struggling team and stock it with corrupt players. Right. And by the time anybody figures it out, you've moved on. Right. So it's not like there's one. I mean, Interpol will try and FIFA will try Mm -hmm. and the leagues will try, but it isn't like a centralized defense. And as you say, one of the things that makes this possible is, and we're in the midst of the Women's World Cup right now, Mm -hmm. there is intense global interest in this sport more than any other, like literally more than any other. It's the most popular sport in the world. And so there's millions of people who are exposed to this in one way or another. Right. And the other key thing is that now the internet makes so many things globally bettable. So I can bet on 
Czech league soccer. Right. And that didn't used to be the case. So that makes opportunity. You can put manipulation far, far away and then bet on it in Asia and nobody connects the dots. So that didn't used to be the case. So I think the internet, just like it exploded, betting of all kinds has made match fixing much easier. That's Ira Budaway. I love the fact that this was all in his notebook. He had never really found a way <laughs> so to tell funny. everyone all of this misbehavior that was going on around the world of soccer. So, Jason, this story about a tragic heist, it's really a tragic fuel heist, more specifically in Mexico, and it went terribly, terribly wrong. It did indeed. Uh, more than 100 dead. Amy Stillman joins us with the story. And take us there to Mexico, Amy, because this was something that obviously caught a lot of headlines. And as you were telling us before we came on the air, uh, this is something that Mexico is still trying to get over. Yes, of course. Um, it's important to remember that Mexico is a country where fuel theft has become a prominent issue here. Um, we see, you know, increasing numbers of um, pipeline taps on um, the uh, Pemex network of pipelines. Pemex is a state-owned oil company. Um, and often these pipeline taps result in explosions, which can kill people. Um, we've seen about 40, up to 42 pipeline taps a day in Mexico. So the problem has gotten extremely bad. Um, but in this particular case, it was January 18th, you know, not that long ago, um, when you had uh, some some people tapped one of these pipelines, and as a result, um, gasoline was pouring out of the pipeline, premium gasoline. Um, people from around the area of the state of Hidalgo, which is in central Mexico, one of the um, key states where pipeline taps occur because of its expansive pipeline network, um, people started gathering. And this is a poor area, um, and people saw the opportunity to get free gasoline, um, the numbers just kept increasing and increasing until you saw around 600 people in total there. Um, now, this also occurred in the middle of a crackdown by the government on this specific problem. So while there were actually soldiers standing guard over the pipeline, because the crowd had swelled to such an enormous level, um, they felt that they couldn't intervene or it would become a riot. Um, unfortunately, that many bodies, people bathed in, in the this geezer of gasoline, um, eventually static, what the authorities say was static electricity, uh, caused a spark. And that spark resulted in the entire area igniting. Um, people were essentially burned alive. Mm. Uh, it, it took a very long time for firefighters and ambulance to get to the scene. And sadly, it resulted in 137 people losing their lives. I mean, this, as you said, this has become kind of a way of life, way of life in that area of, of Mexico. Um, and specifically, I mean, it's a very poor area, right? So for the people who live there, this is an opportunity, what, to get access to this, to sell it, to have some additional income? Exactly. A lot of the people living in this area live below the poverty line. Um, there is a booming market, or there was... Uh, until very recently with the government crackdown, which I'll get into a little bit later. Um, but there is a black market for stolen fuel. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you literally have people, they, they bring their, um, you know, their gas tanks, they fill up from these pipelines, and then they can, you know, they sell it on the side of the road, on the highway. Um, they also, there's a wholesale market where if you go in the right area, you can see, you know, liters and liters of, of gasoline for sale. Um, it's very uh, lucrative because you know it's about um, about half the price in some places that you would you would buy on the legal market. Um, Seventy five percent now the price is going up again because the danger is increasing. And so, Amy, uh, talk to us about Pemex's role in all of this because there's a corruption element here that's part of the crackdown that you've been uh, alluding to in the sense that a lot of what was going on was effectively promulgated by Pemex or at least uh, enabled to some extent, right? Yes, correct. 
Pemex is um, Pemex is a state-owned oil company, which you know had a monopoly until very recently over the entire sector. As a result, it's an enormous company. There are 128,000 employees at Pemex, and that's not even talking about all the people that are contracted by the company. And you know, many of them got involved um, with uh, you know with. With, illegal, with um, people selling fuel on the black market as early as the 1990s. Um, and there was a, you know, a report um, earlier in the year where a government official said probably about 80% of um, fuel theft is conducted with the help of Pemex employees. Um, so this has been, you know, this is a, a problem of endemic corruption within the company. It's very, it's been very hard to um, address because it's so pervasive and because the company is so enormous um, and has a, you know, a long culture of, um, of, of corruption, of stagnation, um, people, you know, unhappy in in their positions and trying to earn an extra buck on the side. Well, and what's interesting, I think that Pemex angle is fascinating, right? Because they're so important to the Mexican economy as a whole, um, obviously. But you do wonder about how you said that enabling these people, because there were guards, but those guards were instructed to notify the company, but just kind of keep watch, right? They didn't get involved. And you do wonder, what is the company's responsibility um, here. And I'm just curious what you're hearing out of Mexico uh, and out of Pemex about their responsibility in all of this. Yes, of course. Well, and the, that is a very good point. The um, the company and the Mexican economy are very much tied together. Pemex represents about 20% of the um, federal annual budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an important contributor to the economy. And this practice of fuel theft results in about uh, $3 billion uh, in losses every year for Pemex. So it's substantial. Um, Pemex has, you know, increasingly... Um, made efforts to work with authorities to crack down on on fuel theft. Um, you know, we've heard of um, gasoline stations um, being investigated for their part in the practice. Um, you know, we I understand that uh, Pemex employees have have been arrested, but. Um, you know, overall, um, Pemex and the government have been very quiet about um, who is actually being charged for this crime. Um, and there hasn't been a great deal of uh, information let out by the government about, you know, actual arrests and, and, and punishment for it. Has anything slowed down after this horrific event? This was earlier this year, and I'm just wondering, these illegal tapping uh, of fuel pipes, has anything slowed down? Well, it's a very interesting question. It's it's not the first time that we've seen a government crackdown against mm-hmm. fuel theft. And just just to provide a bit of background on that, um, what we saw is the the new president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador came into power on December first. Um, he was extremely popular, um, you know, one hands down. Um, he's a leftist leader who has promised to you know increase um, wealth for the impoverished people of Mexico. Um, And so he used that political capital to launch this campaign against fuel theft at the start of January. Um, What we saw is we saw pipelines um, being shut by the government, which um, had two two effects, really. Mm. One was it... um, it created shock in Mexico City and some of the um, central uh, central Mexican areas because there was a lack of, of fuel supply at gasoline stations. And then the other aspect is it actually potentially resulted in something of a retaliation um, from fuel fuel thieves uh, that were you know unhappy with the decision by the government to shut the pipelines and install a, a military right. presence. Um, so we did actually see that happen. Then, on the other hand, um, you know, over over time, we saw it. You know, the, the practice became more dangerous because there's more um, oversight around it. Right. But you know, these are um, the the fuel thieves that are involved in this practice have been doing it for, as I said, for decades. Right. And you know, they're very good at finding um, ways in which to continue to sell yeah. illegal fuel without being caught. So um, I think it's it's very premature to say that this has actually ended the practice. Yeah. Um, now. 
on the other hand, is very, it's important to mention that the government um, says otherwise. Um, one of the, the statistics that's um, being uh, you know, used very frequently now by the new government is that they have reduced fuel theft by 95% since the start of this policy, right. mm. uh, okay. which, which is a, a huge number. And, um, you know, certainly uh, analysts, people in the market are skeptical. Yeah, I could understand why they would. Hey, Amy Stillman, thank you so much. Appreciate you telling us that story. Amy Stillman in Mexico City. Thank you. So March 12th of this year ushered in a new era and not in a good way. Well, the era, I guess you could say, actually started before that date, thanks to a college counselor named... Rick Singer. Well, and we're talking about a new era in college admissions, mm-hmm. how you might get in, the different doors that are apparently available. Janet Lauren's been tracking that. And in this week's heist issue, she takes a little bit of a clever look at all the different doors. She's here with us in New York. So talk to us about how you put this together. So, Well, first of all, it's clear you really can't buy your kid into college, but there are ways that you could be spending a lot of money. So let's review all the doors. The front door is your kid has the real, is the real deal. Real academic tops, top grades, top test scores. Schools want them. Schools want them. Done something amazing. You know, some real achievement. You know, best oboe player in the state. You know, found a cure for cancer, etc. And that kid is going to get into a lot of places. So that's the front door. The back door, um, as Rick Singer talked about, is giving a lot of money. But of course, he said there's no guarantee and it could be really expensive and there's no real assurance. Like, so you, you, like a donation to the school, right? Or something like that? Yeah. We're talking, you know, potentially tens of millions of dollars. Right. But, you know, again, there's no guarantee because, again, you know, the kid has to be able to do the work because um, if the kid gets in and can't, it doesn't really help anybody. So he created the side door by lying, cheating, bribing, um, you know, some of the more memorable um, stuff from the 204-page indictment, including, you know, photoshopping kids' faces onto bodies of crew team members to pretend that they were actually real athletes. Um, He advised faking... learning disabilities to get more time on the test. And of course, he had all these people in place bribing sports coaches. And that was a side door. And I think now it's probably safe to say the side door is closed. So you want to help get your kid an advantage? You know, one way in the chart, if you can follow it, is, you know, test prep. You know, you could spend $50,000 on test prep. So what does that mean? Are you sending your kid starting freshman year of high school two times a week, three times a week? And, you know, chances are if the kid takes it seriously, does a lot of work, he or she might be really prepared. But again, there's no guarantees. Right. And one of the things you talk about and, and parents out there, they're always looking for ways to game the system in a legal way. Mm-hmm. Uh, some going to extremes. You know, one one of the things you say is. Go to a place that's not New York or L.A. or Chicago because folks are looking for geographic diversity. Right. Sure. And one college counselor said, well, try states with only one congressional district meaning it's a really sparsely populated kind of place. But the trick is you actually have to live there. So if you're from California and you have a house, you know, in your ski town in Montana, you really have to live there. And they will, they will of course, check that. You can't just put Montana on your as your address. It has to be consistent. Are your teacher recommendations from teachers in Montana? Are you, you know, helping that local community and doing volunteer work and doing amazing research and playing on the sports teams in Montana? So, you know, you don't want to fake that. Well, they what will a, check. What about, though, being just a great athlete and picking up some kind of activity? So if you're legitimately a great basketball player, football player, there's going to be a lot of people watching. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people who rank and they they see how the kids are doing. They track it in league. So that's kind of hard to fake. And there's a lot of kids who are who are very good. So you may want to stay away from sports that are you know, people are actually watching. Um, we mentioned in the in the graphic, squash is not may not be the way to go. One college counselor told me, you know, a few decades ago, you know, rich rich kids, yeah. you know, they, that maybe that was their end. But now the really accomplished squash teams recruit from overseas, and I mean, these kids ah, are the real deal, right? Yeah. All right, so I have to ask you, and the, and there's a lot of tongue in cheekness yeah, about it's all this graph, it's a lot of, yeah. um, but. We are at this moment where things are going to change. They are changing based on this mm-hmm. scandal. I've been listening to this really in-depth podcast about uh, the scandal, and it does remind you that things inevitably are going to get 
locked down in a meaningful way. As you talk to people out there and you talk to folks at, at colleges and, you know, I'm sure preparatory schools and others, how is it changing out there from your estimation? Well, one thing we've heard is, you know, the, the coaches had some latitude on spots at some highly selective schools. Um, some schools have said they're, you know, they're making that process, you know, they're watching that process more. Mm-hmm. Are these kids Doesn't really going to change? True. Are these kids really showing up on the team? Yeah. And, you know, in, in some of these cases, the kids were not showing up on the team. Um, so there, there's more scrutiny there. Um, you know, how it changes, I think, um, you know, parents um, are, you know, are wondering, should I try to get my kid tested for a disability? That's another place where, you know, you may see some more scrutiny. Um, however, the, the College Board and ACT, they, they try to leave that latitude, you know, somewhat up to the schools that mm-hmm. have been working with these kids for years. And, you know, you can't just show up you know, two weeks before the test and saying, hey, I need more time. Right. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, too. Um, you know, I just think about how much will change ultimately, right? Because in terms of the backdoor and donations or family legacies, like some of this has been going on for decades. For decades. Right? For centuries. For centuries. Schools. Right. But, but this was just so egregious in terms of the fake profiles and, well, and sure. cheating on tests. tests. And, yeah. and cheating on tests. Bribing, cheating, you know, you name it. But I think the long and the short of it is if you get to the end of this graphic, there's a lot of great schools. And they're just not 10 schools that everybody should only go to. And that does feel like probably the most important point in all of this, both in this graphic and sort of where we are coming out of this scandal or as we keep going through the scandal is parents need to chill, you know, and so much of it is about the bumper sticker culture and the cocktail party culture right. of being able to say, my kid's going to fill in the blank. Right. And you, you want your kid to do well at wherever he or she goes and then, and they feel comfortable academically and socially. And, you know, you don't want to thrust your kid in a place where they're going to be drowning after the first semester, just because it sounds amazing. This is your world. Cause you, you know, spend so much time reporting on university endowments. I'm just curious since this story came out, cause we've had so many discussions. I'm just curious what kind of things you've heard from the folks that you talk to in the world that you talk to? Well, I mean, parents are freaked out. Yeah. Um, and also, the College Board came up with a new score. Um, I forget exactly how they term it, but it, it's The adversity score, right. the, yeah. So they're looking at um, the backgrounds of kids. So, for example, you know, they may not know this particular high school in, you know, the middle of California where, you know, they may get a million applications from, say, Nutrier outside of Chicago or Greenwich High School. And they know those high school communities really well. But this is giving them some insight into communities they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are the resources available? You know, they may not have 25 AP courses. They may just have one. And they want to get some backgrounders. Is this kid taking advantage of everything that is out there? Or right. look at all the opportunities that this kid made in a place that doesn't have many. Right. So it gives them some mm-hmm. balance, um, trying to get an understanding of where these kids are in, in contacts with other applicants that, that may have a lot more resources at their fingertips. Well, it's fun. It's a fun thing to go through. It's a fun thing to go through and quite uh, thought-provoking yeah. as you go through it all. Janet Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you. So now to the story of a financial heist, thanks to the misappropriation of more than $30 million from investors. And then you've got a clock running out and getting that money back to investors. Right. You would imagine that someone steals money. They got to give it back. It's going to go to the people ultimately who he stole it from. Not the case for Charles Kokesh. Matt Robinson here with us in New York. Great story. Great insights into the system, as it were. (laughs) Tell us about Mr. Kokesh. Right. So Kokesh, he started some um, some funds back in the mid 80s, even uh, early 90s. He raised a lot of money, small amounts, 5,000, 10,000 from like 21,000 investors. Wow. And um, they basically got back nothing over that time period. The, you know, the dot com bust sort of obliterated. Well, it was investment funds to take advantage of tech to some extent, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was like sort of the next big yeah. thing. And then he had all these, you know, just everything kind of like just lost value. But in that time, um, what the SEC showed in trial was that he kept up a pretty lavish lifestyle. Uh, you know, he he used you know funds that he shouldn't have for his own personal um, you know uses. Yeah, and importing polo ponies, cowboy style <laughs> shooting competitions. At one point, he creates his own private boot making shop. Yeah, yeah, he actually went to boot camp, which I didn't know was a thing. You actually right. learn to make uh, cowboy boots. 
And uh, so, yeah, he had a pretty um, a lot of cowboy hobbies. Well, all right. First of all, how did this guy come to your attention? Because I don't know. Is he like one of many people who are out there maybe scamming investors? And is it allegedly or I mean, a court actually found, right? Yeah, he was he, convicted. Yeah, 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 he was. Yeah. So he um, a jury found that he violated securities laws. What interests me about this, because if for lawyers, Kokesh is a legal term, right? Because this is a precedent. This went to the Supreme Court. Right. So now it's just Kokesh the the case, not the person. So, uh, you know, it's something that the SEC has been talking about ever since. I mean, they they said they've left around 900, almost $900 million, $800 million on the table because not only does Kokesh not have to put, bring, you know, give the money back, everyone else in that same period doesn't have to give it back. And so explain to us what happened, because mm-hmm. as you say, this went all the way to the Supreme Court and there was a fundamental legal argument, as happens when it gets all the way to the Supreme Court, over whether he essentially had to pay the money. Right. So it all comes down to statute of limitations. So, so for the agency, for the SEC, it's five years. So initially, the court said, okay, Kokesh, you owe us $3 million penalty. And the SEC said, well, we're gonna, we want the $35 million plus interest of you know, the misappropriation. And Kokesh argued, well, they're the same. You know, the penalty is $3 million and you want all this other money. And, and he kept appealing and appealing and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court voted 9-0 that Kokesh was right. This, this is a penalty for all intents and purposes. So that the penalty was sufficient, that $3 million was essentially right, sufficient. That, that was in the window of statute right. of limitations because, remember, this, these funds were started so, so many years ago. Right. Well, so it's interesting. So then investors who had given him money got nothing. Right. Yes. Like virtually there was four funds. One got maybe like pennies on the dollar. The other is just nothing. And so what was the legal – the legal argument was all about statute of limitations? Right, right. And now there, Congress does have a few bills sort of uh, in the House and the Senate to sort of to sort of close that, that loophole to say, well, you know, actually, you know, we want you to go beyond – you know, that, that time period, the because, yeah, because for most, you know, like, you know, Bernie Madoff lasted right. for so long, Correct. um, you know, all of these, um, you know, these cases go on. I mean, right now we've been in a 10 year bull market who knows what other, other things have been going on. Right. Well, it's interesting. You do think about the precedent that's set, right. And in terms of other folks or other folks who want to start up investment funds, right. The time, time is on their side. Yeah. For, yeah. For, for something like this, especially the, on the civil side. I mean, you know, on the criminal side is a, a, a different different story. But for the civil folks, it definitely has changed the dynamics because now even in settlements, you know, the SEC doesn't quite have the same, you know, the hammer's not as big. Right. And so when you talk about those hammers, the DOJ does, right? So this in this particular case, just keep me honest here, yeah. the DOJ could have gone after this guy and there would be a different set of limitations yes. or no? Yes, yes. So it's, it's, what's sort of confusing is that you have civil fraud and criminal fraud. Mm-hmm. They're both the same securities violations. But one, civil is preponderance or basically like 51%. Yeah. And criminal is beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's kind of where you have the sort of, they call it the prosecutorial discretion, right? right? Like when do, you know, maybe we can bring this in a civil matter, but maybe not in a criminal matter. I do think about, you know, coming off the crisis, you would have thought that maybe it would have been a tougher ruling, you know, coming out of it, right? In terms of investor protections, but we didn't get that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, I I think the way I think, you know, Congress is trying to deal with it now, um, it was just, for the SEC for a long time, they were using this way to be like, hey, you know, we we won, we want to we want to right. help harmed investors. Right. But they were doing it through this, you know, through disgorgement. What does Kokesh say about all of this? Well, he's actually still uh, he's still appealing the smaller decision. So so he's saying that the three million. Yes. So he's <laughs> saying the smaller uh, decision is um, was beyond uh, the statute of limitations right. because uh, the case was brought in 2009. October 2009. So it has to be the quote, you know, alleged wrongdoing has to be within that October 2004, October 2009 window. And he's saying it was all sort of done by then. Right. <laughs> I had stolen all my money by 2000. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of amazing Folks, the, way, the, the argument uh, that he makes. And as you say, there are some things working their way from a, a lawmaking perspective that could extend the window, what, to 10 years? Is that yeah, what they're talking right. about? Yeah, so they're talking about a 10-year, sort of 10-year window or a 10-year. They're trying to figure out the right um, sort of angle to, to do it. There are some folks against it saying, right. like, you know, because on the flip side, if you're – 
you know, so, you know, people people are innocent, right? People are. Do you want to increase the time, the runway for the government to investigate you for years and years? Right. Well, and that's the point. I mean, I think you put this in your story that when there is financial wrongdoings, right, it takes several years before there's a complaint and then before the government finishes his investigation. Right, right. You know, it's a long, you know, you get subpoenaed, you have to get the documents. It's not a, it's not a two month, three month, well, other than Elon Musk, that was the only time. <laughs> uh, mo- most other cases is about two years. So, yeah. so far he's paid nothing to the government. Uh, right. They're still trying to, they're, he's still appealing that decision. I think, you know, the SEC is, I think in, um, you know, obviously looking to collect. And, and that- living on a ranch in Wyoming. Yeah. Kokesh. So now it's a term. That's right. It's a legal term. All right. All Matt right. Robinson. Coming up soon is an amazing car show. Well, a different sort of car show. Hannah mm-hmm. Elliott, she's with us now, but usually she's talking about the sleek, the new. She's pictured <laughs> in the coolest cars the around. mega cars. No one's going to mistake these for sleek, though. Tell us about what we're going to see at Pebble Beach. Yes. These are not the supermodel cars of the car world. These are the Group B cars, which... Um, are so sad. Yeah, I know. They're like, you know, a little bit on the corner, but they're actually worth a lot of money. Um, it's a group of four cars that are going to be going for sale. They're part of the Group B Rally Series, which was a famous racing series across Europe in the 80s um, over mud, dirt, rocks, cross country. It was really intense. These cars were developed to race in that series. Um, the series was so intense, it didn't last very long. They canceled it after a few years because people were dying. Oh, But the cars have, a few of the cars have remained. They're very rare. They're very special. They've got a racing history. And there is a growing interest in them by discerning collectors, but also people who are just like kind of funky things from the 80s. Well, it's perfect that they're going to be at Pebble Beach. Take a step back, remind everybody about this show, because it's pretty remarkable. It's great. So um, Monterey Car Week is a week a car week that happens every year in Monterey, California. Pebble Beach is the climax to the car week. It happens on the Sunday. It's a big car show, a concours, vintage car, you know, the most beautiful, most expensive cars in the world are shown here. And it's in Carmel, California. It's very beautiful and all that. There are also auctions that happen during the week. And these cars are going to be sold at one of the auctions. And again, they really stand out because they look kind of ugly, Right. And when exactly is this happening? August, this right? is August. Yeah, this is mid-August. Um, I believe it's uh, August 17th, the 17th. I think is the auction. Yeah, yeah, is the actual day that they will be on sale. Um, Gooding & Company is the one doing the sale. They'll be sold by – they are currently owned by one particular collector. And it's well, kind of a big deal. So tell us about some of the cars because, I mean, yeah. some of these are not household names, I feel. Yeah, like. okay. So um, we've got the Lancia Delta S4. This Out of these four obscure cars, this is probably the most known. Um, and, again, we're talking, you know, insider baseball here. But the Lancia Delta S4 um, is an Italian car that has a very distinctive clamshell body. And by clamshell, we mean that the back lifts up completely. It unlatches and then lifts up completely. And that was so mechanics could get to the mechanics of the car um, during a race and fix things as they needed to really quickly. Right. Um, this one is also probably the most expensive of the lot. Um, a similar uh, Lancia Delta S4 sold for $1.2 million wow. in, um, in Essen, Germany in April. This this one that we will be seen selling is probably going to go around for half a million or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this was um, Lancia had the the best the most wins of the Group B Rally series. Again, this is really obscure, but it was the winningest mark of the group, um, so it's pretty distinctive. And tell us about some of the other cars, because again, yeah. you're if if you have this car. They're not sleek. The Peugeot is the one that I keep coming back to because I feel like if someone drove that down my street, I'd be like, that poor person. Oh, like, yeah, that's that really has it. Peugeot. Like, where'd you get that no, car? I know. Yeah. It's, so, of course, Peugeot, we might know, is a French brand. It makes, you know, at this point, economy cars. Right. Um, the Peugeot T16, again, was like a champion race car. Again, completely lightweight, weighed almost nothing. If They got like Kevlar and aluminum bodies, no, nothing on the inside. It's basically metal and an engine um 
uh, one just like this uh, T16 sold last year for 200000 We expect about the same for this particular one. I and love, again, I love you right there. You said fans called them hot hatches, right? Yes. And they were a bit of a Frankenstein car They're, once Peugeot made them suitable for racing. Exactly. Because it kind of was Peugeot took borrowed parts from other makers of the time because they were cheap and because yeah. they fit. And there was, again, no regulation in this racing series. So anything went and they just wanted to get the most power and the lightest car possible and just, again, <laughs> go crazy with Tell it. Tell us about the oddball. The MG Metro. Um, now, this is the MG Metro 6R4. You might recognize the name, you know, like Geo Metro. This is not that. <laughs> this is something. <laughs> yes, it does have share the name, but this is like, uh, again, a monster that was created. Yeah, spoiler on the front, spoiler on the back. Yeah, it's got little huge gills. gaping gills yeah. on the side, and it's t- it's two seats, two doors, tiny wheels. Um, you know, again, they were doing what they could to make it fast. And right. the thought was with the spoilers, of course, they help downforce, um, they help they help aerodynamics, and everything was for the purpose of speed. Obviously not for aesthetic. That's Hannah Elliott, one of our faves for sure. Usually she's talking to us about the most beautiful cars in the world. This time, not so pretty. Not so pretty, but yet there are a lot of collectors at them who would love to add them to their collection. All right, so this is one of these conversations that we love because yes. it's an intersection of things we're very interested in. I say we, Private especially equity. me. Private equity, fitness, fitness deal making. Yes. So excited. Uh, big news, TPG partnering with Crunch Fitness. We have the CEO here with us, Jim Rowley. Thank you so much for joining us in studio. Thanks for having me. All right, so that's the big news, this deal with TPG. Tell us about why and why now. I think why, um, well, first of all, it's fantastic that a company like TPG Growth identified Crunch as an opportunity. We're just ecstatic about that. I think why now is fitness has never been more popular. With the recent changes in the retail landscape, landlords are finally clamoring to have fitness uh, companies and clubs as part of their their old mall setup, their new mall setup, and so forth. So it's been a fantastic time. And I think with Crunch specifically, because we're celebrating our 30-year anniversary, we've, we've proven a successful track record, uh, both in New York and California. And I think that there's a big interest in kind of our platform because of the intellectual property around our group fitness classes, our personal training, and things like this. And then we launched a franchise company that's just been tremendous. So, Jim, talk to us about that intellectual property. Give us an idea, because it's becoming like the fitness space has just been booming. Right. Um, and definitely started, you know, for, has changed a lot, I, I would assume, from when you started. Tell us, though, about the IP and why it kind of makes you an interesting play. Yeah, I think really the heart of Crunch is, is the group fitness. So we create and cultivate our own dance classes and so forth. We're innovative in that respect. We, we we can take from Broadway, we can take from kind of Hollywood, we can take from what's happening on the street. We also go out into Europe, we go into hotspots in Miami and Los Angeles. We look for the alternative that's happening, and we also look for the alternative with exercise. We come back and we create uh, classes around that that are nuanced specifically for Crunch and Crunch members. All right, so we're going to talk a lot about the current landscape, but I want to go all the way back okay. to you getting into this business. You were a Marine. I was. Um, and as I understand it, you have a twin brother. He was in the fitness business that's right. and that's what drew you in. That's Tell right. us that story. Well, think about it. So I'm in every nasty spot in the world as a U.S. <laughs> Marine. Uh, I spent eight years in the Marine Corps. Six of those years I spent mostly overseas. I was in Africa. I was in the Middle East and so forth. And this was back before cell phones and, and text messages. This is messages. the 80s. This right? is the 80s, yeah. right? And, and into the early 90s. And And um, he would write me letters about the fitness business, about working out in these health clubs and surrounded by beautiful people and making a ton of money. And I'm in Somalia. I'm in I'm in Baghdad. I'm I'm in the worst places you can imagine. Right. So that was the original lure. And I'd also been an athlete and I'd worked out most of my life. And especially as a Marine, I worked out all the time. Marines work out a lot. Yeah. So that was uh, that was kind of the, the lure in the beginning. So after I left the Marine Corps, I applied for a job at a company called 24 Hour Fitness. I applied as a salesperson. 
Um, they didn't want to hire me. I didn't have the skills necessary to, to be hired. Um, so I had to call my brother and ask him to call in a favor for me. And he called Mark Mastrove, who was the founder of 24 Hour Fitness, yeah. who's, who's my business partner now. And uh, he put in a good word. And after two weeks, they gave me an opportunity. So I started as a rookie salesperson. And then over the next 15 years, held every position in the company and became the president of 24 Hour Fitness. What was, what was that process like? Like starting at, you know, really kind of the bottom, right? The right. beginning and then kind of working your way up. Yeah. Um, I decided very early that I would take and set, I would set goals basically. And I said, I want to be the youngest vice president in this company's history. So that would be 29 years old. So I was 24 at the time. So I set a goal to be the vice president by 29. I achieved that goal. I learned early that I could apply what the military had taught me around discipline, around assuming responsibility, and around leadership. And I'd apply that to my sales job and my management role. And for some people, it became uncomfortable. And I had to learn to bring back the Marine a little bit and become more <laughs> of a civilian. But uh, it was that relentless pursuit that kind of continued to propel me through the, uh, through the whole 15 years. And, and tell us about that time in the fitness business, because at, at that point, it seems obvious to us now that, you know, group fitness and, you know, working out. But the 80s were like a little bit of a peak. But then the 90s was a little bit different right. as people tried to get their arms around what the fitness business really looked like. Tell right. us about that. Well, the, the business itself was crazy because, I mean, I remember starting at this company. We didn't have a human resources department. We didn't have a legal department. We didn't have all the nuances that you see in business now. So it was a bit like the wild, wild west. Yeah. And the sales guys at fitness clubs in the 80s are notorious for being ruthless in terms of their sales efforts and so forth. So that's what I was thrown into. Um, I tried to polish that a little bit yeah. and be a little bit more proactive around the consumer aspect of things. And I think that helped me along the way. In terms of the clubs and so forth, the equipment has stayed relatively similar. Yeah. Um, of course, step class was the big thing in the 80s. So everybody was doing step. And what's crazy about that is step's coming back. Right. There's been a revolution with step coming back, which is really funny. But... Um, a lot of people that had never exercised before, they were joining a health club for the first time. Um, health clubs were more expensive. If you, if you look at the relative value of money at the time, they yeah. were smaller. Um, a lot of our clubs had swimming pools and things like that. So it was really interesting. But uh, now today, I like to say at Crunch, we're not your mom and dad's gym. I mean, that's, that's the big, the evolution, and especially what the millennials are looking for, has really changed the landscape. Well, what are they looking for? Like, what is it that the customer really wants, the workout, the fitness customer wants today? I, I think the first thing they want is community. They want a place where they feel comfortable. So it should We take, talk about that a lot, that that is such a crucial part. Yeah, it should take the, the shape and form of kind of their other... Uh, their workplace, their lifestyle, and so forth. Everybody wants to feel comfortable. I think I think the planet's pretty lonely, right? So when you go to the health club, even if it's for an hour, three or four times a week, you want to feel comfortable and you want to feel connected. So we're really trying to work on that connection. They're also looking for fun. Everybody's working. Everybody's stressed out. Everybody's hyper-connected to their phones and so forth. So how can we create a fun space? And at Crunch, that's that's really one of our big initiatives is to be fun at the health club as well. Not be so serious. Right. Well, and talk about that because we're in the age of the boutique. We may be hitting, mm -hmm. and we should talk about this, sort of peak boutique in right? some ways because everybody does feel a certain level of performance anxiety right. Right. at some point if they show up at some of these higher ends they're spending a lot of money uh to get there you you guys seem to be creating or trying to create a little bit of an antidote to that right that's right that's right i love peak boutique right <laughs> we've seen a massive expansion with the boutiques especially in new york um and now we're starting to see some contraction there and i think really there's a little bit of fatigue happening with with respect of i have got to go to multiple places to get my workout mm -hmm. and at crunch we've got everything under one roof so if you want to do ride which is our, our bike version you can do that if you want to do pilates yoga group fitness traditional workouts and then we have high intensity interval training in our hit zones as well so we offer everything under one roof for one price where the boutique if you want to ride you've got to pay for a class if you want to do yoga you've got to pay for a class somewhere else if you want to do a hit workout somewhere else so we're starting to see a lot of fatigue and i think the fatigue is around price and around kind of that flexibility that i have to go to multiple places mm -hmm. versus just go to one how would you describe the majority of your customers? Who is that person that walks in? Well, it's interesting at Crunch. We're, we're from 18 to 80. We've got we've got a yeah. whole host, and look, we're open to everybody. So uh, we try to make serious fitness fun. And so it's not about being a type. And I think Crunch is really, you know, we coined the phrase "no judgments," and we're really right. kind of trying to be inclusive to everybody. But if you talk about our typical customer, they're probably in their early 30s, um, working and uh, looking to. Uh, 
manage that peak performance. I mm-hmm. think they're really health conscious yeah. um, and, and really looking for crunch as a part of their community. I do also wonder, like when Jason and I talked to a lot of folks in the fitness world, I mean, there's this whole idea of this holistic approach and becoming a part of somebody's lifestyle. And I'm curious if you guys are incorporating that thinking as well. In terms of their whole lifestyle, yeah. we do, we do, because we offer nutrition counseling, we offer yeah, supplements, we offer personal training. So we really want to extend beyond the three or four hours a week you're going to be with Crunch, ex- extend beyond that. So we have an online platform that allows them to do meal planning and nutrition planning and things like that. We also have a workout called Crunch Live where you can do it on your phone anywhere in the world. And we've got about 135 countries around the world that are subscribing people in countries that are subscribing to Crunch Live. So they can take our group fitness classes anywhere. Is that a growth business? It is a growth business. How, how fast is it growing? Can you give us... Well, I, I would say that we launched it a couple of years ago and we're learning a lot about kind of the digital aspect of things and really how better to kind of both incubate new ideas and then transmit those globally. But uh, I'm telling you this, it's a massive initiative for us now. Yeah. All right, two questions. What keeps you up at night? What kicks me up at night? That's that's a great question. Well, I've got three kids uh, in their in their late teens and early twenties, so that, right. that keeps me all up. All right, to put that aside because okay. that keeps all of us up. Yeah. yeah. What keeps me up at With night is is the um, that we're. I never want to let the consumer down, and I never want to, want to let my team down, and I never want to let my, my ownership group down. So to be honest with you, I just put a lot of pressure on myself to perform. I want to be the best CEO. I want to offer the best fitness opportunity, and I want to make a return for my investors. Five years from now, what's Crunch? Five years from now, Crunch has doubled in size. Uh, we'll have over 1,000 clubs open. We'll be contemplating that public offering. And uh, look for us to be incredibly big internationally as well as we leave the, the shores of the U.S. and expand internationally. And uh, a name to be reckoned with in the fitness business. And the biggest challenge in getting there? The biggest challenge in getting there is managing my pace um, with my team's ability to perform. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's where it's going to be. What my expectations are and how fast we want to run in three to five years with the team's ability to do that. Right. But that's my job is to, is to find that intersection. And that's the Marine in you. That's the Marine <laughs> in you. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much. Thank Pleasure. You. Thank you. That's the CEO of Crunch Fitness, and he's also featured in our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. We talked to him for a long time about his history in the fitness industry and kind of where it's going. Yeah, Jim Rowley, he's been around for quite some time. Got into it through his yeah. twin brother and here he is lo these many years later when fitness certainly front of mind and that wraps up bloomberg business week's weekend podcast thanks so much for joining us i'm jason kelly and i'm carol masser be sure to tune into bloomberg business week radio live monday through friday starting at 2 p.m wall street time and if you can't catch us live get our daily podcast for the ride home at itunes soundcloud and bloomberg.com you can get this week's edition of the magazine it's on newsstands now we'll be back right here next week at the same time this is bloomberg